listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. PTCE Pharmacy Connect listeners, we're back. It's a good day when I get to talk with pharmacists and learn from pharmacists teaching other pharmacists about different conditions, treatment modalities, and also one of my favorite parts is what's coming within a specific subject. Today, we have a returning guest, which is always great to welcome back our pharmacist to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. And we're going to be talking about a, um, a special condition called myelofibrosis, and we are welcoming back Dr. Nashar. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Nishar. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. So, Victoria, just in case our listeners didn't get to hear your previous podcast, just give us a little background on you as a PharmD, um, as a clinical specialist in hematology at the University of Michigan. Yeah, so I am a clinical specialist in hematology, like you said, at the University of Michigan, and I primarily care for patients with both malignant and non-malignant hematologic conditions, focusing on um, lymphomas, myelomas, and what we'll talk about today are myeloproliferative neoplasms, specifically myelofibrosis. The managed care considerations in the use of JAK inhibitors in myelofibrosis um, complex, uh, probably changing from one patient to another, things that pharmacists have to pay attention to. Can you share with our listeners a little of our objectives today when they're listening? Yeah, so for today, uh, today's podcast, we're really just going to review the etiology and pathophysiology of myelofibrosis. It can be quite complex, so really setting the stage for us to talk about treatment options in the future. And so we'll be looking at the World Health Organization classification and, and the diagnostic criteria for myelofibrosis. Victoria, since I've entered pharmacy, I've noticed that pharmacists are becoming specialists in specific rare disease types, and they're being reached out to, to to help in journals, in papers, and as you can tell, in podcasts. So this is exciting. So let's start off. Myelofibrosis is a rare disease. Can you describe to our audience what is myelofibrosis? Yeah, so myelofibrosis falls under the World Health Organization or WHO 2022 classification as a myeloid malignancy. But specifically, myelofibrosis is a very uncommon type of bone marrow cancer that's characterized by a proliferation of the myeloid cells in the bone marrow. And this excessive proliferation really results in fibrosis or scar tissue formation in our bone marrow, and it it degrades our normal healthy bone marrow. So you said it was uncommon. So how prevalent is it and, and who gets it? 
it's it's really rare. We see about 3000 cases per year and considered, you know, a disease of the elderly with a median age of about 60 to 70 years old. However, we know that the rate of diagnosis of myelofibrosis increases as we get older with a higher incidence seen among those age 75 and older. So a disease of uh, older population. Victoria, as you see patients from one to another, there may be trends in their conditions, in correlating conditions. So is there any related um, disorders um, with regards to this disease? There are. So myelofibrosis uh, belongs under this umbrella term of myeloproliferative neoplasms, which also includes polycythemia vera or PV and essential thrombocytosis or ET. And in general, there's you know great overlap among all three of these diseases, um, but we typically, for simplicity's sake, consider ET uh, to be characterized by an overproduction of our platelets. Polycythemia vera, on the other hand, is characterized by an overproduction of our red blood cell count. You can also see an elevated platelet count with polycythemia vera, but it's not going to be as high as in essential thrombocytosis. Now, myelofibrosis is differentiated from those two as really being the advanced form of these diseases where, again, that abnormal proliferation of myeloid cells in the bone marrow leads to this reactive deposition of fibrous tissue. It leads to essentially bone marrow failure. And so rather than the platelets and the red blood cell count being high in myelofibrosis, those blood cell counts are low as well as your white blood cell count. Some patients you know, can have an elevated white blood cell count. This is a proliferative disease. Um, we also in myelofibrosis, which kind of differentiates it among polycythemia vera and essential thrombocytosis, is the fact that we see extramedullary hematopoiesis. And so because our bone marrow is failing, because it can't make enough platelets and other cells it needs, our body tries to compensate and make these cells elsewhere. And so we see the spleen try to take over and make platelets. And so we see splenomegaly. Now, myelofibrosis, it can develop on its own. Um, and when that happens, this is called primary myelofibrosis. However, patients with PV and ET can also develop myelofibrosis later on. And we consider these cases to be secondary myelofibrosis. And this happens about 10 to 20% of the time. And then I just want to quickly, um, for our listeners, kind of differentiate um, between another disease that can look very similar to myelofibrosis and this being myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS. And so in MDS, like in, in myelofibrosis, you have low white blood cell count, low platelets, low red blood cells, but the reason behind it is different. In MDS, you don't have this fibrous connective tissue kind of taking over the bone marrow. What is happening in MDS is that the bone marrow just can't make these cells for some reason. So that's a little bit of the differentiation between two diseases that can look very similar. Victoria, especially with other podcasts that we've listened into, including the one that you participated in, we talked about genetic markers and there's the diseases, particularly myelofibrosis, associated with what specific genetic markers? So for a while, you know, we didn't know if there were genetic markers, you know, you assume there is, but we didn't know what they were. And in 2005, you know, there was a breakthrough in the understanding of myelofibrosis in the discovery of mutations in Janus kinase 2 or JAK2, specifically the most common being JAK2 V617F. And so we know that 
50 to 60% of myelofibrosis and ET patients and 90% of patients with polycythemia vera have mutations in JAK2. And JAK2 Jack and Jack 2 is a tyrosine kinase that is involved in the very complex and complicated Jack stat pathway that's located intracellularly. Um, that really is functioning to stimulate cell growth and survival. And so thinking about that pathway, having a mutation in JAK2, which is right central in that pathway, it's constantly telling the cell to grow and divide even when it shouldn't be. Now, in addition to mutations in JAK2, we also see a few other recurring genetic mutations in myelofibrosis, and those being mutations in NIPL and CalR. And it's interesting because there's this, you know, intense and, and um, complicated interplay between JAK2, MIPL, and CalR, where again, JAK2 is located right within that JAK-STAT pathway. MIPL is actually uh, the, the gene that encodes for the receptor. So thrombopoietin will bind uh, to the megakaryocyte receptor and stimulate and activate the JAK-STAT pathway. And MIPL is the gene that regulates the receptor. So if we think there's a mutation in MIPL causing excess um, receptor population, then the cell is going to be uh, activated more often than usual. And then CalR is an endoplasmic reticulone chaperone. And so it's responsible for bringing proteins to MIPL and activating the receptor, activating MIPL. And so a mutation in CalR, you know, causes excessive recruitment of proteins to the MIPL promoter site, again, constantly activating that JAK-STAT pathway. We know though that it, while we know that these are drivers behind myelofibrosis and the myeloproliferative neoplasms, they're not all created equal in that, you know, a mutation in JAK2 will activate that JAK-STAT pathway to a higher degree than a mutation in MIPL and CalR. So while they're all important, you know, where a patient's mutation lies helps us to explain for some of the clinical heterogeneity that we see and how aggressive a patient's disease will present. That is really interesting. Thank you for describing that. I'm thinking of other genetic markers. Are there any other disease-specific genetic markers? So myelofibrosis is, is very interesting and very complex as more and more molecular mutations are becoming detected in our research. We see recurring mutations in things like IDH1 and 2, EZH2, there's a whole host of them. Um, right now, they're just considered, you know, high risk molecular features. We're still, a lot of research is ongoing to kind of delineate if, you know, what they mean, um, which ones are driver mutations, so which ones are really behind the disease course versus have just been picked up along the way. We call those passenger mutations. And, you know, so more to come, I think, on understanding the genetic makeup of myelofibrosis. Um, and then the other, you know, big area, one place we don't really understand in myelofibrosis is we still don't understand the pathogenesis behind the fibrosis. And so I think once we can understand the genetic makeup and the pathogenesis behind what is causing the fibrosis and the marrow, then we can develop those targeted therapies to reverse the course of the disease. So I always think of that pharmacist that in your case, Victoria, you see these patients uh, time and time again. So you've become much more sensitive to really understanding signs and symptoms. Could you describe to the listeners how a patient might present? What are, what are those signed, signs and symptoms? 
Yeah, so the signs and symptoms really are the clinical manifestations of this disease. So the bone marrow is failing and we can't make red blood cells. So patients will present with marked, marked anemia and then the fatigue and the night sweats and fever that come along with that. You're going to have low platelet count. So patients are at high risk for bleeding, bleeding and bruising, but they're also at the same time high risk for clotting. Um, this is a malignancy. There's dysregulation of cytokines. With the cytokine dysregulation, you can also see itching as a sign or symptom when patients present. Um, and then because hallmark again to this disease is your bone marrow can't make platelets and other things. So your other organs in your body try to take over and compensate. So you see hepatosplenomegaly very commonly in these patients. And that big bulky swollen spleen and liver causes abdominal pain. It causes early satiety and then weight loss in a lot of these patients. And so again, patients are presenting due to the manifestations of what's happening within their bone marrow. So what about the prognosis? Are there risk stratification? Is there a scoring system that you can describe? Yeah, there are. There are quite a few prognostic scoring system, which is uh, unique to myelofibrosis, especially given how rare of a disease it is. There are several that we can talk about. Um, I just want to say that unfortunately, at this time, the vast majority of patients with myelofibrosis don't have curable disease. And that's because, you know, while we don't get into treatments now, the only real curative treatment option we have for patients is an allogeneic stem cell transplant. However, we, you know, we talked about these are older patients, they have comorbidities. And so unfortunately, an allogeneic stem cell transplant, because of the morbidity and mortality associated with it, you know, it's not an option for most patients. So right now, this is not something that is curable for most patients. However, there are certain patients that can live with myelofibrosis for a very long time. And we use several scoring systems to risk stratify patients. I'd say that the most common ones we're using right now um, are the International Prognostic Scoring System, IPSS. And then we've improved upon that and came up with the Dynamic IPSS or DIPSS+. Um, those are probably the two most common ones we're using right now. Victoria, you're mentioning those different systems and it brings up curiosity about the differences between them. Can you kind of dig into that? Yeah. So like I said, you know, IPSS and DIPSS plus are, you know, the most common. IPSS has been validated uh, to come up with a patient's prognosis at the time of diagnosis. However, we know that the course of the disease changes over time. The patient's symptoms change. It can become more severe, less severe. And so the DIPSS plus has incorporated things like a patient's karyotype, their platelet count, their transfusion dependency, so more granular details about their the clinical sequela of the disease currently. And so DIPSS plus, in addition to adding more variables than the IPSS, it also has been validated to be used to determine a patient's prognosis throughout their treatment. So it's more dynamic as its name implies. More recently, um, there have been a few uh, newer scoring systems that have really looked at just incorporating more cytogenetic information. Again, you know, we talked about you know the genes that we think are involved in the mutations, but like I said, we're finding more and more every day. So we're trying to incorporate those more into the prognostic scoring system. More recently, we've had the mutational enhanced IPSS or MIPS70. There's even a MIPS70 plus version two. 
Um, we have a genetically inspired uh, scoring system. However, those, you know, mutationally based scoring systems right now have, they haven't been validated enough to be widely used uh, in practice. So again, that's why the DIPSS and IPSS are most commonly used currently. So you're describing these systems. It makes me think of the preference of our of our physicians, of our pharmacists that are specialists. So is one scoring system preferred over the other? Um, I would say the recommendation right now, what we're commonly doing in practice is we're using the IPSS to give a prognostic score at diagnosis. And then again, using that dynamic one as a patient's disease evolves over time. And using those scoring systems, you delineate patients into different categories from low risk, intermediate risk one and two, and high risk with the differentiating variable being that a low risk patient has a median survival of 10 years or longer. So can live with this disease for a very long time. A high risk patient, on the other hand, has a more dismal survival looking at about one and a half to two years. And so you can have a patient present as low risk. And then, you know, throughout the course, five years in something happens, their disease becomes much more aggressive. And you can use the DIPSS to kind of give you a more accurate prognosis at that time point. So keeping that in mind and thinking of treatment, if it's not curable, does everyone need treatment? What's the goal of, of our pharmacy teams? Yeah, so like we said, I would say majority of patients, this is not considered a curable uh, disease, unfortunately, at this time. And when looking at treatment of myelofibrosis, it can be quite complex and, and frankly, quite, quite challenging. Um, the clinical behavior is quite heterogeneous. So patients present on the spectrum and the disease burden is, is really variable. And so how we choose treatments and what we go for is extremely personalized based on you know, the patient's symptom burden at the time, their risk category, their preferences, and then the characteristics of their disease. So not only how severe are they presenting, but how aggressive, how evolving, how quickly evolving is their disease. For patients with low-risk disease who are, you know, pretty asymptomatic, you can do a watch and wait approach. You know, our goal is to, you know, improve a patient's symptom burden, improve their quality of life. And if they've got good quality of life um, and minimal symptoms, then we don't want to give a treatment that might make that worse. So we can do watch and wait. For patients, where anemia might just be the issue, everything else is pretty stable or maintained, can do things like erythropoiesis stimulating agents, maybe some immunomodulatory agents like lenalidomide. We talked about that this is, you know, a disease characterized by bone marrow failure. And so a lot of patients, their white blood cell count is going to be low, but there are some patients with a proliferative disease that have a very elevated white blood cell count. So maybe they just need, you know, a cytoreductive agent like hydroxyurea to bring it down. And what we're really focused on, not for this podcast, but a future one is our JAK inhibitors, because that discovery of that JAK mutation, you know, really triggered the development of these molecularly targeted oral therapies. So we have multiple JAK inhibitors now, which is great. And they're not only effective in patients that have JAK mutations, but they're also effective in patients that don't have JAK mutations. So I think that speaks to a little bit about, you know, how we don't have a full understanding of what's going on with this disease. Boy, I think of complexity. I think of the challenges that you have as a pharmacist that's focused on this disease and comorbidity and things that can come into play with our seniors, because you mentioned this hitting 
um, the the older population. So you mentioned um, uh, treatments ongoing, but what challenges are there? You can you kind of elaborate on those treatments and, and, and the challenges around the treatment that, that you're suggesting? Yeah, so I think you know it's it's quite challenging and complex for a few reasons. The first being, you know, again, the entire disease process is not yet understood. And we see a very heterogeneous phenotype among, you know, patients with the disease. The clinical manifestations also make this disease very difficult to treat. These patients present very tired with low blood cell counts. And none of our treatments at this time, you know, reverse or prevent that marrow fibrosis. So we haven't been able to develop a treatment at this time that's going to change the natural course of the disease. Again, the only thing we have the cure patients is an allotransplant. And, and so hopefully in the future, we have some therapies that can reverse that fibrosis and stop it from happening if we can catch it early. Right now, our treatments just focus on lessening symptom burden and improving patients' quality of life. And I think one of the biggest you know, challenges of the disease is really monitoring the disease activity and disease progression. It's not straightforward. Um, you know, to really get a good picture and understanding of what's happening, you know, with a patient's disease, we need to look inside their bone marrow. And the only way to do that is to do a bone marrow biopsy, which we know is super invasive and we're not going to subject patients to repeated bone marrow biopsies. And so we do, you know, the next best thing, and that's use their spleen size and use their blood cell counts to tell us how their disease is responding and how it's progressing. You know, you see the physician come in the room with a tape measure and physically measure, you know, a patient's spleen. Um, however, they're surrogate markers and they're not, you know, sometimes the best indicator. And you can, you know, you need to have a significant amount of marrow fibrosis occur before you can see your platelets be impacted, before you see your spleen get big. And so, you know, we're catching it too late, um, I think is part of, of the problem. And so it's, it's, it's very a complex disease to monitor and manage. This is also balanced with the fact of, you know, we're not going to get into treatment details right now, but a lot of the side effects of treatment in malignancies in general, you know, are, are low, low red blood cells, low hemoglobin, low platelet count, low white blood cells. All of those mimic, right, um, indicators that you have poor acting myelofibrosis disease progression. And so even when you're treating, um, you know, even when you're treating these patients, it can be really hard to delineate and determine if you're seeing actual disease progression or lack of drug response, um, or you're seeing a side effect of your drug. And this is particularly important when we talk about our JAK inhibitors as a, you know, they've revolutionized this disease, um, but some of their side effects mimic uh, disease progression. So it's a little, it's, it's challenging to delineate and that's why you need a multidisciplinary team on board. Dr. Nashar, this has been a great uh, conversation. I thank you for the clarity and the focus that you're providing in treatment. Um, I am encouraged by pharmacists stepping out and becoming specialists in specific and complex diseases. Our favorite question to ask our guest is, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? Single most important. 
I think that's, you know, that's difficult with such a challenging disease. So maybe this will be a run on sentence, but I guess I would say that, you know, myelofibrosis, it's, it's an aggressive myeloproliferative neoplasm, primarily driven by activators and mutations within that JAK-STAT pathway, particularly JAK2, CalR, and MIPL. And the hallmark of this disease is bone marrow fibrosis and a decreased survival. Now it's, you know, the behavior of myelofibrosis is quite heterogeneous and patients will present um, with a variety of symptoms on a spectrum of severity. Our treatment decisions are, are kind of all over the place because they're personalized for each patient and they're influenced by patient symptom burden, their disease risk category, their comorbidities, and their preferences. Our goals are to get patients to live as long as possible feeling as well as possible. I'm hopeful and I think ultimately, you know, we need more research to fully elucidate the underlying drivers and the pathogenesis of the disease again, so we can then develop therapies that are going to go after, you know, what is behind the bone marrow fibrosis and change the natural course of the disease for patients. And I think that's coming. Um, we just need a little bit more time. Victoria, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you for being part of another PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. A shout out to our listeners. You're our favorite providers. If there's anything you ever need, if there's any other information that you're looking for, please reach out to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect teams. Uh, look at your show notes for references. Uh, you are champions out there. You are advocates for our patients and patient care, especially when they're going through complex disease states like we review today. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.